The following message is from King's Church 1066, based in Hastings, Bexhill and the surrounding area. For more information, head to our website, kings1066.org. Thank you very much. It's always the lovely to be back in Hastings. If you don't know me, I'm Andrew. I'm part of the Bexhill congregation. So it's a joy to come and spend some time with you. I know that today in your cake sale, you are competing with Bexhill, trying to beat our target. I can only warn you, the Bexillians really like cake, and I think they're quite keen on supporting the youth as well. So you've got quite a task ahead of you if you're going to beat our total. I'm really thrilled today to be continuing our Abide series. We're currently working through John chapters 13 to 17. So John's one of the biographies of Jesus' life in the Bible. And these chapters are sometimes known as the farewell discourse. These are Jesus' final words to his disciples before his arrest and his trial and his execution. And we now, as we read this gospel, we get to kind of overhear this conversation. So these chapters are great for any of us who are a bit nosy and like to listen to other people people's conversations, because this is a conversation we're meant to overhear, we're meant to listen in on and be nosy about, and we're meant to learn from it. And what we've been doing in this series is working through these chapters, kind of section by section, drawing out what Jesus is saying. What I'm going to do today, actually, is to zoom out. We're going to look at the whole of these chapters together and pick up one particular theme, which is really important and really prominent in these chapters. And it's a theme that's really important to us, has great importance for us as followers of Jesus, has great relevance to us, and yet well, I don't think we often, or often we don't manage to spot that with this theme. But these chapters are going to help us both to understand something of what this theme is and also why it's so important to us. What I'm hoping these chapters can do to us reminds me a bit of something that happened to me a few years ago when I actually found a use for something I'd learned at school that I thought would have no real-life relevance. I'm sure many of us remember sitting in math lessons at school and learning Pythagoras' theorem. It's this thing in maths that helps you find the length of one side of a triangle if you know the length of the other two, if it's a right-angle triangle, all this kind of stuff. And I can see some of you glazing over, don't worry. It's not going to become a maths lesson. I was learning this at school. I wasn't overly into maths, to be honest. I wasn't overly interested in Pythagoras. I couldn't really see the point of learning this and where there'd ever be any real-life relevance from this. And then, zoom forward a number of years, I'm um, here, as it happens, upstairs in the office, and I was drawing up a floor plan for a children's ministry event we were going to run, and I realized I needed to know the length of a side of a right-angle triangle. And good old Pythagoras popped into my head, and that helpful little math tool helped me work out what I needed to know. It was a moment of revelation as I realized something I thought wasn't really relevant to life actually had real-life relevance, actually was helpful to me. That was a moment of revelation for me about Pythagoras. My hope is that some of us today are going to have a moment of revelation about this theme we're going to look at in these chapters. What we thought of as irrelevant actually has some wonderful relevance to us. We're going to look in these chapters at the truth and the fact that God exists in Trinity, that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And this idea, this doctoring or this teaching of the Trinity is kind of the kind of thing that we as Christians probably know something about. And if you've been around with us for any period of time, you'd have heard us talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But often it's something we kind of vaguely know something about, but we don't really see the relevance of, we don't really get what actually matters and why we actually need to know that. But these chapters of John's Gospel help us both to get a good understanding of what the Trinity is, 
but also see, you know, this is really important. This has real life relevance to us. And actually, these chapters are a great place to go for that. They are some of the most important in the Bible for understanding this truth. Because you won't actually find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, and you won't find the kind of abstract, bullet-pointed explanation of the Trinity in the Bible. But this doctrine of the Trinity is a way that we hold together what God has revealed about himself in the Scriptures. And when in the earliest days of the church, people were wrestling with what God had revealed about himself, these chapters were some of the key chapters they went to when they were understanding this truth of the Trinity. So what we're going to do is to ask of these chapters, well, what is the Trinity? And then we're going to ask the second important question, well, why does that actually matter? So let's start with that first question, what is the Trinity? And I reckon that's the question that, if we're honest, many of us, if we're followers of Jesus, kind of don't want to be asked. We maybe feel we know we should kind of know what the Trinity is, but we're not quite sure what it means, and we just hope no one ever asks us to tell them or to explain it. Or maybe we think, actually, the Trinity is meant to be just such a mystery that we can't possibly understand it. We couldn't possibly understand what it's talked, what it actually means. But this is a truth God has revealed in his word. That means it's something he wants us to know about, something he feels is important for us to know about. And I want to encourage you, we can expect to have a level of understanding of what it means for God to be Trinity. In its basic form, the Trinity is not as complicated as people sometimes think. So don't be scared off by the concept. It does take us beyond human reason. Okay? Our human brains, our human ways of thinking can't fully work out how it all fits together but we can get a decent level of understanding of it. We can't explain how it works, but we can understand what it means for God to exist in Trinity, and that's what I think these chapters help us to do. And the way to understand what it means for God to be existing in Trinity is to have three statements and to hold them all together as true at the same time. Here's the Trinity in three statements. There is only one God. One God. And this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and these three persons, each one of them individually is fully God. If you hold all of those three together, you've basically got an understanding of the biblical doctrine, the teaching of the Trinity. And you'll notice that put those three together, and that takes us beyond the realms of human reason. It's impossible for us to kind of square that circle, to work out how each one of those can fit together, how they can all be true at the same time. But actually what we do is we say this is what God has revealed about himself. Even though there's tension there for us, we hold each of these as true. And we might not be able to compute how it works, but we can understand what it means for God to be Trinity. One God, three persons, each of these persons fully God. And you could take any one of those statements out, and it would fit within human reason. We could kind of make sense of it a bit more, but it wouldn't fit with what God has revealed about himself in the Bible each one of those is vitally important. And each one of those we can see in these chapters of John 13 to 17 that we've been looking at. Let's just briefly have a look there. The first one, there is only one God. This really is the foundation for all New Testament teaching about who God is and what it means for God to be Trinity. The Jews of Jesus' day, remember Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He came into a Jewish context. The New Testament written originally into a Jewish context. The Jews of Jesus' day believed unanimously, without exception, that there is only one God, and that only this one God, he alone, should be worshipped. 
And that was rooted in the Old Testament, that the first part of the Bible and the history of the Jewish people and the nation of ancient Israel, where the God of Israel was the only God and the only one who should be worshipped. And this one's really important. This means the Trinity isn't kind of three competing gods or three cooperating gods. There is only one God. And in John 13 to 17, we see this in the unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Though they're separate persons, they are deeply united as one. So, for example, in John 15, 23, Jesus says that anyone who hates him hates the Father. To hate Jesus is simultaneously at the same time to hate the Father because Jesus and the Father are one. There is only one God. And he explicitly says in chapter 17, verse 11 and 22, that he and the Father are one. They are inseparably linked. There is only one God. And Jesus, in chapter 14, speaks of the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of followers of Jesus. And he says that he, Jesus, and the Father will come to believers and make our home in them. And notice what's happening there. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And as the Holy Spirit lives in us, the Father and the Son are simultaneously making their home in us. Why? Because the Spirit and the Son and the Father are one. They are united. There is only one God. There is deep, deep unity because there is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But this one God exists in these three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these persons are distinct. The Trinity isn't that at different time, God wears kind of different outfits or takes on different characters or personas or avatars. And at one point, he's God the Father, but another point, he's God the Spirit. No, these are three distinct persons. And we see this in John 13 to 17 through their actions and their interactions, the way they interact with each other. The Father sends the Son. And the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to us. You can't send yourself. You send someone else, and you're sent by someone else. These are separate persons sending each other in that way. One verse that nicely helps us see this is in chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus speaking, talks about the Helper. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Notice we've got all three there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And notice the ways they're interacting. Jesus is going to send the Spirit. The Spirit is going to come from the Father. The Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. All three are doing different things. They are separate persons, three distinct persons. The Trinity isn't God with different hats on, or different costumes on, at different times or in different places. This one God exists in three persons. But then the vital final kind of leg of the stool, as it were, is that each of these persons is fully God. This is the key bit. It's not that there's one God who's made up of three parts, each of which are a third of God. No, each of these persons is fully God. It's not that there's one God and two kind of demigods or two kind of servant gods under the one real God. No, each of these three are fully God. And you'll notice it's when we put this final statement in that we suddenly realize, man, our brains can't compute this. This doesn't fit within human reason. How can there be one God, but he's in three, but then each of those three are fully God? How does that work? But I don't think that's a problem. The fact that our brains can't compute this isn't a problem, because why should we, the created, 
expect to understand the Creator? Isn't it more likely that the one who created us is going to transcend human reason that he created? This isn't a problem. And so we trust. This is what God says about himself. And we trust, even though I can't work out how does this work, this is true. We hold this statement to be true because the Bible says it is. And it helps us get what it means for God to exist in Trinity. And again, in these chapters of John's Gospel, we see each of these persons is fully God. With God the Father, it's kind of self-explanatory. But there are places in these chapters where God the Father is explicitly spoken of and just referred to as God, simply put. We see that the Son is God. If you know John's Gospel, you know that's already being explicitly stated. Right at the very start of this Gospel, we're told that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word, and he was with God, and he was God. He is God. And we see it in these chapters, because in these chapters, Jesus shares things actually are unique to God himself. They show us that he is God. So for example, in verse 5 of chapter 17, Jesus talks about sharing with God the Father glory before the world existed. Well, the Bible's really clear that God's glory is his alone. He says, for example, through Isaiah, one of the prophets, the messengers in the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, 8, God says that he won't share his glory with anyone else. God doesn't share his glory with us. We never get his glory in that way. And yet here is Jesus experiencing that glory. Why can he give it to Jesus? Because Jesus is God. When we read that Jesus has existed and received glory from the Father for all eternity past, we're meant to realize, oh, that's because he is God. Likewise, we see that the Father has given to Jesus his name. Chapter 17, verse 11. God's name speaks of kind of the core of who he is, the essence of who he is. It's about his fundamental identity. Again, it's something we as the followers of Jesus don't get given. We don't get given God's name, but Jesus says he's been given God's name by the Father. How can that be? It's because Jesus is God. The Son is God, and the Spirit also is God. When Jesus talks in these chapters about all the things that the Spirit is going to do when he's being sent to Jesus' followers, it's just a continuation of the stuff that Jesus has been doing. There's this intimate link. Jesus is doing this stuff while he's on earth, and then he sends the Spirit after he's returned to be with the Father. The Spirit continues the work of Jesus. Why? Because he is God. Another thing we see in these chapters, the Spirit is often referred to as the Spirit of truth. In John 14, 16, for example, We've already seen in this gospel, Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth in chapter 1. Jesus in chapter 14 is the one who is the way and the truth and the life. The spirit of truth is one with Jesus and the same with Jesus. He's the spirit of truth as Jesus is truth because he too is fully God. He's intimately identified with Jesus in these chapters to show us that he is God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of these persons are fully God. Not a proportion of God, not one God and a couple of demigods, each fully God. And if we can get our heads around those three statements, not how they fit together, but just get our heads around them and hold each of those as true, we've got an understanding of what it means for God to be Trinity. There is only one God, but this God exists in three persons, and each of those persons is fully God. That, I find, the most helpful way to grab hold of what the Bible says it means for God to exist in the Trinity. 
And that's all very nice, but then we want to ask a second question of, well, why does this actually matter? Maybe you're thinking, this is feeling quite like Pythagoras. Why does this really actually matter? But I want to show you, you know, there's real-life importance here, real-life relevance here. The Trinity has huge significance for us if we are followers of Jesus, and these chapters help us to see that. Let me just open up for us three ways that these chapters show us the Trinity is so important. One way or one area in which this is so important is in the area of revelation. The Trinity is vital for God revealing himself to us, us getting to know who God is. We get to know who God is and what he's like through the Trinity. We see this, for example, in John 14. Jesus has uh, just been saying that he's going to go away to the Father to prepare a place for the disciples. Uh, He's been saying that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that knowing him means knowing the Father. And all of this kind of gets Philip, one of the disciples, thinking and causes him to ask a question. Here's what he asks in verse 8 of John 14. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Philip is kind of saying, Jesus, you keep talking about the Father. We want to see the Father. We want to know the Father. We want to learn about him. And Jesus' response is, well, you can, and actually you have. Because when you see me, you see the Father. Verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father because Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is Jesus. Because they are united as one, they are God. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. Jesus reveals to us what God is really like because he himself is God. And he's not just a representative of God. He is the reality of God. Our prime ministers have official official spokespersons. They are people who um, kind of sit in front of the assembled press for them. They make statements on behalf of the prime minister. And then they have to answer questions. And they've got to try and answer questions in the way they think the prime minister would answer. They're trying to represent the perspectives of the prime minister. And inevitably, they can't do that perfectly because they are not the prime minister. Jesus is not the official spokesperson of God the Father. He's not a representative. He is the reality. Everything that Jesus says and does, everything we see in Jesus perfectly reflects to us God the Father because he and the Father are one because they are both God. Jesus reveals the Father to us. Jesus is the clearest, most powerful, most perfect revelation of what God is truly like. If you want to know what God is like, go and look at what Jesus is like. If you want to know how how God feels about people, go and look at how Jesus interacts with people in the Gospels. If you want to know how Jesus feels about sin and suffering, go and look at how Jesus responds to these things in the Gospels. Jesus puts on display for us the very heart of God. There's a famous line from a theologian called T.F. Torrance. He says, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. And that's such a helpful line. Sometimes we kind of think, you know, Jesus is great. He's full of grace and mercy and gentleness and kindness. 
but there seems to be this slightly shadowy figure kind of hiding behind him, the father, and he seems a bit more harsh and a bit more difficult to get along with. And we think we love Jesus, but we're a bit uncertain about the father who's hiding behind. There is no God behind the back of Jesus. What you see in Jesus is what you get in the father. Jesus is not there hiding a big bad father God. Jesus is revealing to us the wonderful heart of the true and living God. What you get in Jesus is what you get in God, is what you get in the whole Trinity, because the Trinity is one. Jesus reveals God to us. And so much it is the Spirit. Jesus tells us in these chapters that when the Spirit comes, he continues Jesus' work of revealing God to us. In John 16, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and in verse 14 he says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit reveals Jesus to us. He declares, he announces, he reports the things of Jesus to us. And the things of Jesus are simultaneously the things of the Father. The Spirit reveals to us both the Son and the Father because he is one with them. He is God. The Spirit living inside of us, if we're a follower of Jesus, reveals to us, speaks to our hearts about who God is, about what he is like The Trinity reveals God to us. The Trinity is vital for revelation, and if you want to get to know what God is really like, look to the persons of the Trinity. Look to Jesus, who puts on display the heart of God. Look to the Spirit, who comes and dwells in our hearts and reveals God to us. Revelation is one reason the Trinity is so important for us. Another one is relationship. The Trinity is vital for relationship. The Trinity, actually, at core, is a relationship. What does it mean for God to be Trinity? It means that for all eternity, God exists as a relationship of love. The reason the Bible says God is love isn't because he's just really good at loving. It's because he exists as a relationship of love. God has never not loved. He never will not love because for all eternity, he is in relationship with himself, a relationship of love. Love is at the heart of who God is, the heart of the Trinity. And then the wonder of Christian salvation is that through Jesus, you and I get brought into that relationship of love. That's what the Bible says. We get brought right into this relationship of love that exists at the heart of God, at the heart of all that is. The good news of Christianity is that the Father sends the Son. The Son returns to be with the Father, and then together the Father and the Son send the Spirit so that you and I can be brought into their eternal relationship. We see this in John 15, at the end of Jesus' work, uh, words about the true vine. And Jesus says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Do you spot what Jesus is saying there? Do you realize how big that is? Jesus is saying, I love you, my followers, with the same love that for all eternity, the Father has loved me. We get to abide in that. We get to rest and relax and remain in the love that exists at the heart of God. The love that the Father has for all eternity past, had for the Son, is now the love that Jesus has for you if you are a follower of him. It's astounding. That's what Jesus himself tells us. 
And notice how it works. He says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It's really striking here for Jesus. Love and obedience go hand in hand. They're not separate things. They go hand in hand. And he says that we're to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus keeps the Father's commandments and he remains in the Father's love. So too, we're to keep God's commandments and to remain in his love. And the example of Jesus there is meant to help us kind of understand how that works. You see, Jesus doesn't become the loved son of God by being obedient to him. Jesus is obedient to the Father because he is the loved son of God. His actions flow out of his identity, flow out of that relationship. Jesus' obedience is the marker of who he is. It's not the maker of who he is. And the same is true for us. That our obedience is to flow from knowing that we are loved children of God brought into this relationship of love. We live, out of, we live in obedience out of a place of being loved. For us too, obedience is the marker of being loved. It's not the maker of our being loved. But it is important to notice, Jesus says love and obedience go hand in hand. The relationship between the Father and the Son shows that. That means you can't truly love God and be loved by God if you're not interested in being obedient to him. That's what Jesus is telling us. We as his people are called to care about seeking to live in obedience to him. And when we do, it's an outward sign that we are loved by him, brought into that relationship that we are his children. A sign that Jesus loves us with the love that the Father has loved him. And strikingly, this whole section of John's Gospel, 13 through to 17, it ends on this note. It ends with this point. It's pretty much the last thing Jesus says in this gospel before his arresting, his trial, and his um, death, and his execution the next day. In John 17, the last of these chapters, Jesus is praying. And at the very end of the chapter, he prays for people who in the future will believe in him. He prays for you and I. Literally, in this paragraph, Jesus is praying for people like you and I who in the future will believe in them. And in the very, very last verse, the very, very last thing he says in verse 26, he says, Jesus speaking to the Father, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus came to make God known to us, Revelation, so that he might dwell in us by his Spirit, so that the love that the Father has for the Son for all of eternity that love might be in us. And this is the whole climax of this section of John's Gospel. Arguably, it's the climax of Jesus' whole ministry in John's Gospel. It becomes the springboard into the trial and the death and the resurrection. And what that tells us is that Jesus' whole ministry, his coming to earth, his living, his dying, his resurrection, his ascending to be the Father, all of that, all of that is aimed at bringing you and I into the heart of the relationship that exists at the core of who God is, into the love that has for all eternity past and for all eternity future will exist in the heart of the Trinity. Why did the Father send the Son? Why did the Father and the Son now send the Spirit so that you and I can be brought into the love that exists at the very heart of who God is? It's astounding, but it's what Jesus says. The Trinity is vital for relationship. And a final one, the Trinity is vital for mission. In fact, our involvement in mission, as in telling other people this good news about Jesus, is just us participating in the mission that the triune God is already on. You see, God is on mission. 
the whole story of the Bible is the story of God's mission. God is the one who has a mission, a mission to deal with the problem of human sin or rebellion against him, a mission to bring humans back into that wonderful life-giving relationship of love with him, ultimately a mission to bring himself glory by showing how good he is because that is what he is deserving of. God is our mission. And in these chapters, John 13 to 17, they're about the mission of God. Notice kind of all the, all the stuff that's going on here, all the, the workings, all the actions. There's sendings in this chapter, with the Father sending the Son, and then the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. There's comings and goings. Jesus has come, and now Jesus is going to go back to be with the Father. But then the Spirit will come, and as the Spirit comes, the Father and the Son are coming to us. There's comings, there's goings, there's sendings. God is active. God is on mission. God is doing something. God is on mission, and then we get invited to come and play a part in that. We get to be a part of what this triune God is doing, of his mission to seek and save and to bring glory to himself. Jesus points this out to us in chapter 15. Verse 26, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit comes to play his part in this mission to bear witness, to just to report, to tell us, in a sense, about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done. He comes on God's mission. And the very next verse tells us that we, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we get caught up in that mission too. Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. We as followers of Jesus have a role to play, partnering with what God is doing, bearing witness. And worth pointing out at this point, notice these words originally said to the 12 disciples. We weren't there with Jesus in the beginning. All of these words actually originally said to the 12 disciples, and it's just worth logging that actually. The Bible is written for us, not written to us, and we have to have that in mind. But by extension, these words apply to us. We know that Jesus has called all of his followers, all of us, to be witnesses to who he is, to be those who announce and report this good news. The Spirit comes as a witness, and then we too get drawn into that. We are called to be witnesses as well. And so when God calls the church to be on mission, he's not kind of forming a new task to keep us occupied and have something for us to do while we're here. He's inviting us and calling us to play our part in what he has already been doing for all of human history and he continues to do today. This means that for us as a church, for us as Christians, mission is not kind of an added extra. It's not a clever idea that God came up with when Jesus went back to and ascended to be with him. Mission flows in the very heart of who God is. And mission is what God is doing all the time. And now you and I get to play our part. We get to partner with him in that. Mission flows from who God is and what he does. Therefore, to be part of the people of God means to be involved in this mission and to play our part. The triune God is on mission. He makes mission possible. He calls us and invites us to be involved in that mission. So this is why I think the Trinity is so important to us, why it has real-life relevance to us. The Trinity is about revelation, about relationship, and about the mission that God calls us to. The Trinity isn't like learning something because you have to, even though it's pointless. It's not like many of us feel like about things like Pythagoras. The Trinity is vital to Christian belief and practice and full of real-life relevance. May the band come up at this point, please. And so there's a lot in there. But what is it that God wants you to take away today? What is it that you're going to do to respond to this truth? Maybe for you, the revelation point is the one God really wants to hit home. 
Maybe for you, actually, your response today is to give some time to get in to know who God really is. Maybe you need to go and read the Gospels and see what is Jesus like and what's he revealed to us of what God himself is like. Or maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you and be bearing witness to your heart about who God really is. Maybe for you today, it's the relationship point that God is putting on your heart and highlighting to you. That God wants you to recognize he loves you with the same love that for all eternity past has existed between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We always, I think, basically have too small a view of the love of God. You can never overestimate, over-understand, or over-get uh, the love of God. We want to ever be reflecting on this wondrous truth. Maybe for you today, it's just reflecting on that, asking the Spirit to make that uh, experience reality in your heart. Maybe you're here today and you're not in that relationship. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You've not made that choice. Friend, today, the invitation to you from the God who made all, from the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the invitation to you is to be welcomed into this relationship of love that's at the very center of all that is. If that's you, you've not made that step, don't leave this place without finding out more today. Talk to uh, someone who brought you, if you came with a friend, or talk to one of the leaders or someone in our lanyard. We'd love to tell you about Jesus and what it means to follow him. Or maybe for you, the thing God is highlighting is this mission point that he is on mission and that you've got a role to play in that mission. Maybe he's provoking you and encouraging you and stirring you about what your role is going to be. We're going to worship now. We're going to have a chance to bring our love and our adoration, our worship to this triune God. And it's a chance just to listen to what does the Holy Spirit want to say to us today? Ask him, which of these three? Just take one of them home today. Does he want to lay on our hearts and want us to respond to Shall we stand as we just seek to engage with God, set our eyes on him? The band are going to lead us as we worship in just a moment, but I want to read some words over us first. I said right at the beginning that when the early church were wrestling with who God had revealed himself to be, they were wrestling with these chapters. And sometimes they would write these kind of statements of what Christians believe, these kind of creeds we call them. These summarize what for 2,000 years Christians have believed. And I'm going to read over us some of the words from something known as the Athanasian Creed, which beautifully summarizes who God is as Trinity. Some of it's a little bit complex. Don't worry if you don't get it all. But let the glorious truth of these words wash over you. Let your eyes be raised to this triune God as we come to worship him. Now this is the Catholic, the universal faith that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal, and yet there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Amen.